Um, yeah, we are down in a bit today, spring break probably this week and probably next week. So those of you who are here, we'll make it, uh, uh, we'll try and put something extra in it so you feel like, uh, gee, I'm glad I went. Um, one of the things I did this week is I killed the new PowerPoint that we started last week. Uh, Kelly Leone said it gave her a headache. She didn't like the yellow. At least that's what Bob said, so you never really know if that's quite the way Kelly said it. But uh, bottom line is, is the yellow's gone, okay? But we've kept a couple of little touches from it, so you'll maybe see it. For those of you who are visiting, Lindsay and, and Jonathan and, and Tim, we met, uh, uh, or your nephew, whatever his name is, Clay, and uh, uh, Betty, who's here, and the others that I didn't get to meet. This is class we call biblical literacy, and the goal of the class was, let's just start with Genesis, and let's go through the Bible, and let's answer the questions and read the stories that would make us biblically literate people. So let's try and understand why the books were written, and who wrote the books, and why the books are in the order they're in, and who decided to put them in there, and who didn't, and why does the Catholic Bible have more than the Protestant Bible, and and uh, uh, things of this nature. We started a little over two years ago now. We've made it through, and we're actually right now in the book of Acts. Uh, but we have, in the process of going through the book of Acts, we've paused at the various places where Paul wrote some of his letters so that we could take those letters within the context of Acts and their writing. So right now, Paul is in Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus on that uh, uh, second missionary trip, he's writing to the Corinthian church. Our book we call 1 Corinthians. He's writing it anticipating an, a visit soon. And in fact, he will visit soon. In the process of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has attacked the divisions that were in the church. The church was divided in a number of ways. Some were divided by the teachers that they followed. Uh, there was the crew that liked Paul, the crew that liked Apollos, the crew that liked Peter, then the super spiritual pious crew that just followed the Lord. And if you don't have a lesson, they're uh, hand flashing those at me to say, uh, if you need one, raise your hand and they'll bring it down while we're reviewing. Um, in the process, Paul also attacked the divisions that were along uh, uh, more economic lines. The rich people, clearly at least in communion, were segregating themselves off from those of lesser means. And Paul uh, uh, said, saw that as a, a, an attack upon the body of Christ itself and dealt with it very harshly. Paul is very blunt in this letter. He speaks with strong irony. He speaks with strong punch. It's one of the strongest written letters in terms of, uh, uh, of the way Paul delivered his message. In fact, we'll see when we study later writings of Paul, the second Corinthian letter, that Paul has had to make some amends with the Corinthians to some degree because he clearly hurt a number of their feelings with his letter that he wrote. And it's interesting to, to read Paul handle that. But Paul is very blunt about wanting to humble those of pride and, and to take the super spiritual and say, don't think yourselves high and mighty because you're not. No one is high and mighty save Jesus Christ. And the only thing to be prideful and boast about is the fact that Christ lives in you. And if that's all we should be boasting about, then no one has any cause for boasting within the church. Because within the church, by definition, as DeMond said this morning, Christ lives in each one of us who are in the church. So no one's got any reason to think themselves higher or mightier or more boastful than anyone else they sit with in the congregation of believers. Um, Paul has also spent time in this letter telling the people to adjust their behavior to adjust their practices and what they do in a number of different ways. We've studied those as well. In the process, Paul has also defended both himself and his message. 
Clearly, some of the church thought that when Apollos came after Paul, uh, Apollos had taught things that some of the people thought were of heightened spirituality. And some of the people have launched into their own uh, uh, things and in the process of launching into their own things have found themselves, they thought, more spiritual than Paul who just seemed to have such a basic message. Because as Paul said in chapter 2, verse 2, he came to know, he made a resolution before he started the church there a couple of years earlier. He made a resolution. He was not going to know anything among them except Christ and Him crucified. And while the Corinthians thought that to be so basic and elemental, for Paul, that was the culmination. And there could be nothing more profound. And Paul then explains that as he goes through this letter. And today as we finish the letter, the explanation sort of reaches its big crescendo for Paul. So what do we have today? We have a couple of things to look at. First of all, Paul is going to detail the gospel in the first 12 verses of chapter 15. So we'll have that to look at. After that, we're going to look at Paul's talking about the resurrection of the body. And it's a wonderful thing. It's very profound. It's very interesting for me to read and study this. I first studied Corinthians in any depth when I was in college. I took a course, uh, uh, it was a third year Greek class entitled uh, 1 Corinthians and, and we translated 1 Corinthians uh, for the class. And I have not really studied it, I guess I've taught one or two classes a series on Corinthians over the, the last few decades, but I haven't gone into any, y'all come on in. Um, I haven't really gone into any detail on it uh, in probably the last five years of my life. So this was very interesting for me with dad having died about a year and a month ago now. Um, it's very interesting for me to relook at this passage on the resurrection of the body because I tend to look at it differently than I would have uh, or did at any other time in my life. So I'll be interested for us to talk about that this morning. In the process of that, there's this obscure little passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul talks about the Corinthians being baptized for the dead. And the Mormon church and the Mormon faith has taken baptism for the dead to uh, incredibly elaborate theological heights. But I don't know anyone else who does it other than the Mormon church and uh, uh, some folks during the, the church at Corinth there in the first century. So we'll discuss that passage a little bit today uh, uh, as we go through the class. Um, Paul then in chapter 16 gives some personal notes uh, and, and uh, gives some encouraging words before he signs off the letter. Talks about his plans to visit soon, who he's sending, who's not coming, and things of that nature. Let's finish up 1 Corinthians, and uh, uh, I think we'll be uh, back to Acts next week. Um, <clears throat> the gospel. This is where we start. Now, um, as always, I, I tell you all, I try real hard. I've got about seven of you in my brain when I teach class. And the seven of you in my brain, I figure out what it is that would communicate to each one of you. And I feel like Lewis is one of my seven. I tell him that all the time, and, and he gets fed up with it. Dr. Bob is one of my seven. And, and, and I, I, I've got seven people in here. I always preach at Becky. And I've got... <laughs> I've got, I've got seven people in here because there's some things y'all like. And I think we've kind of filtered out the people who don't fit any of those seven categories because this class has nothing for them and they leave. But there, there are two of you out of the seven who always like to get a little bit of Greek mixed in. So it is, it's not just mixed in for you today. It's actually very important if we're going to understand what Paul is talking about with the gospel. 
that we talk about some Greek. So this is necessary Greek for us to really grab and, and digest much of what Paul says in the first 12 verses of chapter 15. So we're going to look at the gospel, but we're going to start out with uh, um, a, a little... Uh, 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 see these guys? This is, a, uh, this is our class icon today. They are um, they're talking amongst themselves. So, we're going to talk today about the gospel, right? Well, you say gospel in front of these group of people, and what kind of reactions do you get? Gospel. One of them wants to know, oh gee, are we going to be talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Four gospels, right? Another one is going to say, oh, you want to talk about the truth. Because if you heard the expression, that's the gospel truth. Or someone, is that the truth? Yeah, it's gospel. And some people use gospel to talk about the truth. And then the fourth one, bless his heart, said, yeah, I saw it on Broadway. That was God's spell. He has a hearing problem. <laughs> um, God's spell, I might add, though, was based on the gospel accounts of the life of Christ. Uh, but he, you know, he can't hear well. So anyway, uh, when we talk about the word gospel, though, as Paul is going to use it in 1 Corinthians 15, it's not Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. He's not saying it as an expression of the truth, and he's certainly not talking about the play that was on Broadway. When Paul uses the word gospel, Paul uses it with a very specific meaning. And I fear all too often we read the word gospel and we think something that really is not there. I've even, I grew up in a church where one of the expressions that some people used was to obey the gospel in the sense that that meant to go be baptized. And that's not the correct usage of the word either. I didn't add it up here, but that could have been another illustration. When Paul uses the word gospel, almost every time Paul means something very specific. And it's very important we get a hold of that. And to do so, we need the Greek lesson first. So here's the Greek lesson. To thee or not to thee? That is the question. The word thee is used sometimes. Sometimes the word thee is not used. And when you are a Greek writer, you've got to make a decision. Am I going to use the word thee before this noun or not? Let's all get on the same page and make sure we understand what the functions as in the English language. Grammarians would call it a definite article. Okay. All right, this is all getting, don't, don't lose me here. This is not as horrible as English was in high school. Um, the definite, the is the definite article. Well, what does that mean? That means that the very next word after we in English use the word the is going to be a very specific noun or a very definite noun. The means a noun's coming, a noun's a person, place, or thing, right? So when you use the word the, you've got something very specific that you've got coming afterwards. Not a general noun, something that's a very specific noun. So for example, um, uh, if, if uh, I just wanted to talk about, uh, well, I've got it here. We'll go back to our gossip circle. I go to A. University of Texas. See, A would be called an indefinite article because you don't know which one. You know, they could go to something really good like Texas Tech. That's a University of Texas. Certainly the one that beat Howard's Sooners yesterday in basketball. 
but I'm not going to mention that. So they could be meaning, I go to a, I go to a University of Texas. Um, you know, we, Matt's here. Matt Taylor's here for spring break. He goes to Colgate. He goes to a, a University uh, 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 of New York, up in New York. Colgate's in New York, isn't it? Yeah. So, so he goes to a college in New York. But there's a difference between someone who says, I go to a University of Texas, and someone who says, I go to the University of Texas. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, not everybody can get into tech, and so some people have to have the outlet school that they, you know, the fallback plan B. Um, but when they say, I go to the University of Texas, you see how that makes it specific as opposed to A, which is just general? Okay, let's use another example. Uh, I'm sure the Sunday school class was good today. Someone probably is going to be saying that on the way out. And if you're near my mom and you hear her say it, then you say, hi, Mrs. Lanier. Because the response of another number of people might be, well, I'm sure a Sunday school class was good today, but it wasn't the one I was in. No. Um, you see the difference between the Sunday school class that we've been in versus just a Sunday school class that's somewhere in the church? See the difference between... When you use the word the, you mean something very definite and very specific. Now, Greek doesn't have the word a. They don't have an indefinite article. So if you don't use an article at all, it's considered generic. You're just talking in general. But if you use that Greek word the, that definite article, then the writer is saying, I want you to know I'm talking about something very particular. A very specific noun, a very definite noun. This is, this is not just any University of Texas. This is the University of Texas. This is very specific. Now, when Paul speaks of the gospel almost every time, even though our English Bibles don't uh, stick it in there always because it doesn't read sensibly in English, almost every time Paul does it, he uses the word the because Paul's talking about a gospel that's a very specific Gospel. So, for example, in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay? File that one away. We're going to throw out about three scriptures here. File each one away, and then we're going to look at it. Or Galatians 1.6 and 7. I'm astonished that you're turning to a gospel that's different, a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So there we've got him without using the word the, just a gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And then, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Okay. This is a pretty important gospel to look at. Look at what he said in Thessalonians. We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.4. So what is this specific gospel? The gospel, not to be confused with any ordinary gospel. Anybody watch the news? Okay. When you watch the news, they've got good stories, they've got bad stories. The bad stories, I don't really enjoy watching. Okay. They caught the guy who, who was responsible for the tragedy in Atlanta. And I mean, catching him was, was good, but that whole story was just bad news that... Though I, I, I watched it, I needed to know about it, I wanted to know about it, I didn't enjoy it. But occasionally they'll have good news, stories that are really good, and I like those stories. They're a lot more fun to watch. Now, my question is, what is the gospel? And to do that, we're going to understand the gospel. 
comes from the Greek word you, which means good. You, you good. You can say that, you'll be speaking Greek. Um, you good. You don't say that to Lewis playing racquetball. <laughs> Only because his arm is hurt. You good. So you get you good plus we add angelon. See, in Greek that's an A-G-G, but when you put two G's together, you make the first one sound like an N. So that's why that's written in English, A-N-G. But it's really in Greek, A-G-G. You angelon. You plus angelon, which is message or news. We get the word. What do we get from angelon? Angel. And what's an angel? A messenger. Someone who brings a message from God. Okay? So, you angelon. You put it together and you have the Greek word for gospel. So what gospel really means is good message or good news. Now there can be lots of good news. But for Paul, when Paul talks about the gospel, he's talking about a specific piece of good news. A specific fact that he is reporting. Paul has some very specific good news in mind. He's not talking about just any good news. Not just any gospel. He's talking about the gospel. Paul doesn't talk about a good message. He talks about the good message. So... When Paul says, I want, this is 1 Corinthians here, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. Here Paul is going to lay it out. We are going to learn what Paul means when Paul talks about the gospel. What is the good news to Paul? Here is the good news. Here's Paul's gospel. Here is the gospel. This is what you received. This is what you've taken your stand on, on which you've taken your stand. And most importantly, by this particular specific good news, you're saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you need to circle at the start in your Bible because this is Paul's definition of the gospel. And every time you read Paul talking about the gospel, almost every time where he uses the specific word the, Paul is talking about this. This is what's in his mind. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised on the third day. That's the good news. Now, are we saying that the incarnation of Jesus and the birth of Christ was not good news? I mean, hark the herald angels sing. You know, this is glad tidings and good news. Yes, it's good news. But that's not the good news that Paul was calling the gospel. Are we saying that the life of Christ, his biography to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is not good news? Wasn't it good news that he taught us a better way to live, that he explained to us the law, that he explained to us uh, uh, God and God's love? Yes, that's all good news. But when Paul uses the word gospel, that's not what Paul means. When Paul uses the gospel. For Paul, the good news is this. Jesus Christ died, buried, and resurrected. Jesus could have been God incarnate. Jesus was. But if He never died for our sins, the news would not be that good. Jesus could have lived a perfect life and taught the perfect sermons and, and, and shepherded the people perfectly. But if He never died, buried, and resurrected on our sins, that's not good news. By the same token, Jesus could have died and been buried. 
But if he was never resurrected, that's not good news. So for Paul, when Paul uses the word gospel, Paul's got a picture in his mind of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. And so when you look at Paul's passages, Romans 1, 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. I'm not ashamed that Jesus Christ died for me, was buried and resurrected. Because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, is the power of God to save everyone who believes. In the death, burial, and resurrection, in the gospel, in Jesus crucified and resurrected, in that, a righteousness from God is revealed. When I was a kid in high school, there was part of me that really wanted to take a Bible to school. I went to a public school, and I thought... You know, I should not be without my Bible. And, you know, we used to call it the sword. What soldier wants to be without his sword? And I didn't want to take too big a one. I thought I'd take a pocket knife instead. So I looked for, like, one I could really shrink down. And because the reason why I wanted to do that is because of this Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I thought I should not be embarrassed to take my Bible. Well, I look back at that memory and I, I, I smile and I, I, I appreciate the fact that I really wanted to try and do what's right by God. But I misunderstood this verse. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, see, I didn't understand 1 Corinthians 15 yet. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he doesn't mean I'm not going to be embarrassed to carry this around and let people know that I've got the gospel here. What Paul means is, it does not shame me to tell you that I'm not good enough to have God's blessings by myself. It doesn't shame me to tell you I'm not adequate and I don't measure up. It does not shame me to say I need Jesus Christ to die for me. And I'm not ashamed that he had to die for me and that he was buried and resurrected. And the reason I'm not ashamed is that's God's power to save everybody. That is the power of God to say your sins are forgiven because I, in Jesus Christ, have paid the price for your sins. That's the power of God that says my life is not the way it would have been, save Jesus, because Jesus Christ has made a difference. And, and, and it doesn't shame me to say that. It doesn't shame me to be someone who needs Jesus Christ because everybody needs Him. And apart from Christ, there is no righteousness before God. God has no one standing before Him righteous except Jesus Christ and those in Christ who put on Christ, who are clothed with Christ, in whom Christ dwells, as Damon said this morning. So... Paul says, whoops, we missed it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. And you go back to those other passages where Paul talks about the gospel, and this is what Paul means. So we see the word gospel from Paul, we need to understand what he's talking about. When Paul says this, this is interesting to me, and, and um, I'm 44. Um, I look back at my life, and my life's been fast. I don't know how many of you have lived a quick life. Um, I'm 44. It seems to go by quick. 
I see my mom out there. She's 29. <laughs> Hers has gone by quick, hadn't it, mom? Her mother, grandmother, she's 39. Yours has gone by quickly, hadn't it, Nina? It just goes by fast. I don't know where you are in your life, but it goes by fast. I look back at what happened 20 years ago, and it seems like yesterday. I was a young lawyer at Fulbright and Jaworski. I, uh, um, living here in Houston, our first son, Will, had been born. And I just, it seems just like yesterday. And I can tell you things that happened in 1985. Now, you young kids, you won't understand this maybe for a few years. <laughs> yeah, Alphonse, you know it. But, but uh, um, those of us who are old enough, we see that. Yeah, I mean, you can describe what happened in 19, Dorothy, 1985. You remember that. You, you remember when Ronald Reagan was president, and yet that was a, okay. And I can tell you Ronald Reagan was president. And if someone wants to know it, I, I can call lots of witnesses to the fact. A lot of people in here can witness Ronald Reagan was president, right? Okay. Paul's writing 1 Corinthians 52, 53, 54 A.D. Jesus has been crucified for 20 years, 25 max. So when Paul says that Jesus was resurrected, that's not so far back history for him. Paul was a guy who was a wheeler dealer. He was in the power structure. He was online to become the biggest and greatest there was going to be in the Jewish faith. And he counted it all as garbage and threw it in the trash can to follow Jesus Christ, get whipped and beaten, ridiculed, scorned, thrown in prison, abused, lost all of his money, lost all of his prestige, lost all of his power. And he was the happiest guy in the world because he was following a resurrected Jesus. See, So when, when Paul says to the Corinthians, Jesus is resurrected, Paul says it and doesn't leave it there. He says, I've seen him. You think my life would be what it is if I hadn't seen him? And I'm not the only one. Peter has seen him. There are more than 500 people that have seen him that are still alive today. You got any doubts? You go check the stories of all these different people. You got a doubt whether Reagan was president? I can give you 500 people that will prove to you he was. They'll tell you about it. You can compare the stories. Paul is bold here. Paul is saying, I can give you 500 people. You doubt the resurrection of Jesus? You doubt that it was physical? You doubt that it was real? There are people still alive. It only happened 25 years ago. Paul wouldn't have changed his whole life unless he was either a madman or he'd seen Jesus because he cashed in on, in earthly terms, a pretty raw deal. Only in eternal terms was it a treasure. So, Paul uses this to talk about the resurrection of the dead. Now, what were the Corinthians saying about the resurrection of the dead that caused Paul to write? Well, some were saying, um, I don't want to die. There's no resurrection. When I'm dead, it's gone. When my father Bill Lanier died last February, he's gone. He'll never exist anymore. He's disappeared. He's history. And so I don't want to die. I want to hold on to what I've got here. Someone else. If it's for me, tell them, I'll call them back. 
the resurrection. What is someone else saying? Saying, of course there's a resurrection, but it's a spiritual resurrection. See, there was a whole bunch of people in the church. This is spiritual. This is not. You quit thinking about the body. Think about the soul. The resurrection's already happened. Jesus was a spiritual resurrection. In fact, the second coming, some in the church thought, had already happened. Jesus came back. It was a spiritual return. And when he came back spiritually, he enlightened me and my heart. That's why I'm super spiritual. You may have missed the second coming. That's why you're pretty base. Sorry, but it's okay. You can get my car for me when it's raining. And maybe one day, if you listen carefully, you can be spiritual too, because I've caught the resurrection. You missed it. And Paul says, absolutely not. Nobody's going to miss the resurrection. But that's what the Corinthians were saying. Paul says, if there is no physical resurrection, if, there's not, if Jesus Christ wasn't physically raised... And we're not physically raised, and there's not a physical resurrection, then A, Jesus not resurrected, B, our faith's a lie. If Jesus isn't physically resurrected, this is a lie. If Jesus isn't physically resurrected, I can stand up here all day long and da 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 da, da and that's all it is, is idle chatter. It's absolutely useless. What good is anything I have to tell you if Jesus Christ wasn't physically, if the tomb wasn't empty, if the body were still in the tomb and I was just walking around telling you, but there is a spiritual resurrection. Come with me and let's ride the Spirit's wave. That's goofball. And pity the idiot Christians if there is no resurrection. That's harsh language, but that's the language Paul's using. We're to be most pitied of all people, stupid people that we are, if we don't understand that there was a physical resurrection of Jesus and that we have a physical resurrection too. He says, then we're to be pitied. Now this is where Paul throws in the baptism for the dead passage. He says, why on earth are you getting baptized for the dead if there's no physical resurrection? And scholars have just dwelt and dwelt on that. One scholar I respect, Gordon Fee, in his commentary said that, that Gordon, he did something I didn't have the patience or time to do. Gordon said, I found like over, I don't know, it was like 20 or 200, some, I put it in the notes, some astronomical number of different interpretations on this. Because to be frank with you, we don't know what was going on, okay? Baptism of the dead is not something that's written about anywhere else in the Bible. The early church for the first several hundred years writes nothing on it at all. It's not a common practice. So something particular was happening at Corinth, a particular church at that particular time in history that Paul used to illustrate his point. Doesn't mean it was a valid practice. Doesn't mean it's practice for the church. Doesn't mean anybody's doing it. And what were they doing? We don't really know. I have my suspicion. My suspicion is these, some of these people were just so tickled pink over getting baptized and the significance of it. They said, I'm going to do it for Uncle Louie, who died too early to find out all this stuff. And I'm going to do it for, you know, Auntie Gazelda. And, and Paul's got more important things to deal with, and I'm sure that one can wait till he visits them and he sets them straight. 
Because at least they seem to have had a good heart for what they were doing. But Paul uses it, and this is the reason we've got it now, to say, why on earth are you doing that for Uncle Louis or Auntie Gazelda if they're not going to be resurrected? Your own practice tells you that something's beyond this life. Now, what happens when we're resurrected? Well, we get a new body. We get a new body, Paul says. What's it going to be like? I don't know. I can tell you a few things because Paul told us. I can tell you it's going to be imperishable. It's not going to break down like Lewis is going to have a good shoulder. Um, Bob and I are going to lose a few things. Our excitement is that, uh, you know, when we were all on, who, who in here did the body for life thing for at least a day? <laughs> we started doing it at work. Bob said he had the belly for life. We're going to lose it after this life. We're going to have an imperishable body that's not breaking down. Barhorst, Adams, you doctors are going to have to find something better to do. Because the body's not going to be breaking down. It's going to be imperishable. It's going to be raised in glory. It's going to be raised in power. And it's going to be in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Who was fully recognizable after his resurrection. I don't know what my dad will look like in his resurrected body. But there's not a doubt in my mind that he'll have one. And it won't be a stroke-ridden body. And it'll be raised in glory and it'll be raised in power. And it'll be in the likeness of Jesus. God said in Genesis, let us make man in our image. Mankind. Men and women in our image. And the nice thing is, in the new creation, God will give us bodies that are remade in the likeness of the resurrected body of Jesus. Now, what else does Paul say about it? How's this going to happen? Well, he answers a few of those questions as well. He says it's going to be in a flash. Now, he didn't have flashbulbs, but we named them flashbulbs because of what they do. We already had the word in the vocabulary of flash. It'll be in a flash. In the twinkling of an eye. Paul says at the last trumpet. And this is good news. This is the good news full circle. This is why Paul says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus not only profoundly alters our spiritual state, but it proclaims for us that we live with God eternally. And that's, that's great news. Jesus is resurrected. Believers are resurrected. There is life after death. So where is the sting of death for the believer? There is no sting. And that's what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is thy sting? There's not any. There's not any. Now, this is a great reason for us to live fully for God. And do we get... I sometimes get concerned with myself that I get so caught up in all of the minutia of living and the I have fun life. I have a wonderful life. It's got its share of misery, but it's got great fun and joy. And I get so caught up in the fun and joy or sometimes so caught up in the misery that, that I worry sometimes I get out of the focus that I need to be in. And so I don't know if this is you or not, but I work hard daily to keep a focus 
that I can live today fully for God because this world is really not about what I'm going to be eating for lunch. This world is really not about paying the bills and trying to have enough left over to do something special. This world is really not about trying to be popular. If you're a high school kid, that's what you think it's about, but that's not what it's about. This world is about the fact that God originally made us, that we sinned through Adam, our forefather, that we're separated from God, that God came to earth truly, not just in some spiritual-esque idea, but He physically was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a life of perfection, and then He died taking our sins, was buried, and was resurrected a new man, ascended to the Father to live and sit at the right hand of God, And in Him, I get rid of all of my sin. And I have a promised resurrection because I'm a new creation. And when I die, there's no death. There's no sting. Death is a door I walk through to glory. And and that gives me a different reason to live. Because now I'm living, I've already started my eternal life. And so have you who believe. Eternal life is not something we get, it's something we have now. When Tim's dad died, he didn't didn't all of a sudden get eternal life. He already had it. He just passed through a door. And, And that's the glory of what we've got in this. And that's what Paul says. So our life is not in vain, and we've started our eternal service. Chapter 16, Paul's concluding notes. First four verses are interesting. He says, uh, um, here's what I want you to do. Paul's taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. He says, when you come together on the first day of the week, set aside as each of you have means to do. That's where we get our Sunday tithing from. You wonder why in in, uh, uh, church we pass around the baskets on Sunday? It comes from this passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul basically told the, first, the, the church there to be setting aside each week on the first day of the week. That's also an indication to us that the church was meeting at least on, on Sundays, if not other times as well. Um, so part of being biblically literate, store that away in your, your brain. Paul talks in the rest of 16 about uh, sending Apollos and Apollos not wanting to go, sending Timothy, who's going where, and then Paul concludes with an admonition, admonition to live a holy life. It's a wonderful admonition. Points for home. Good news. Not just any good news. This isn't a gospel. As Paul said, I'm, when, we remember the Galatians passage? He said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the gospel I preached to you and turning to a different gospel, which really isn't a gospel at all. I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting the good news that Jesus Christ died, buried, and resurrected for you, and you're turning to some different good news, which really isn't good news, because there is no other good news. All news pales in comparison to the fact that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and resurrected for us. And that is, that'd be great news, maybe, what we'd call it. Instead of you, Angelon, we'd need the word for great instead of just good. We share the resurrection. We do. We do. We will be resurrected 
in Jesus Christ. And that's astonishing. And I go back to the fact, Paul, I mean, he's either an entire nutball or there's truth to this. Because he's, he's throwing out names. He's throwing out witnesses. He says, you got any question? You go ask everybody. You compare stories. You do whatever you want. The bottom line is Jesus physically was resurrected. I saw him on the road to Damascus. And it's the only reason I would ever junk everything I had in my life and live like an outlaw on the run instead of in the paradise of being the most popular, powerful, rich, aristocratic Jew I could be. Death has no power over us. And our life is now worth living for this God. Because now we don't live for today. We're, we've already started eternity. We already have eternal life. Does that make sense? Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you so much. I thank you for coming to this earth and dying for me. I thank you, God the Father, for resurrecting the Lord Jesus. For letting people witness that resurrection physically and write about it. For letting history record how true and accurate these events are. And Lord, I thank you that you confirm this for us as you dwell inside us and that you confirm this for me. Lord, I thank you for each brother and sister I have here. And to the extent we've got anyone listening to this now or, or through the tape message that does not know the power of your resurrection in their own lives, it is my prayer that they will give their lives to you. That your Holy Spirit will convict them of their sin and of your righteousness in Jesus Christ. And Lord, it is my prayer for all of my brothers and sisters here and for me that our lives will be different and we will not let Satan hold on to the little pettiness and the worldliness that we know apart from you, but that we will dwell in the riches we have in you and that people will see our confidence, our hope of glory, our trust of you in the way we love each other and the way we take care of the mission you put us on. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen.